Hello, and welcome to Chad's ADHD 365 podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Takeda, better health, brighter future. Hi, I'm your host, Susan Booning, and I'm here today with Kate Barrett to talk about strategies to help with treatment compliance. Kate, would you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm an ADHD coach. I've been coaching for about eight years, and I work primarily with older students and parents. And um, during the pandemic, I've gotten into working with adults a lot more as well. Um, I like to tell people I have kind of a Baskin Robbins of ADHD in my own house, which is how I came to coaching. And um, I have two, two of my three children have a formal diagnosis. And through that process, like so many of us, uh, adults in the house were also diagnosed. <laughs> So we're going to be talking about transition age youth, um, but for parents to understand transition age youth. So what strategies can parents use for convincing their transition age youth, teens, college students, young adults, to stick with a treatment plan? I think open communication is always the biggest benefit when you're working with a child that has ADHD. So the the more you can co-create what those defined goals or aims are for the next stage of their life, that can be really important. And and as each child gets a little bit older, it goes into the next stage, whether it's teenage years, college students, or they're graduating from college and going out into the working world life and structures and support systems are going to change for them. And I think it's really important to sit and have a discussion with them. I found personally as a parent, I know a lot of the parents I work with have found that car time is really a great uh, moment to have these conversations. When you've got them alone, they're captive and they don't have to make eye contact with you. So sometimes you get a, a little more out of them in the car than you might otherwise. But um, for, the, for the most part, the sooner you can start having these conversations, I think the the better the outcome will be for everyone. You know, even just asking them, what does a treatment plan look like for you? Or how do you define that? What does that mean to you? Because that may not be what they want to refer to a treatment plan is. I, you know, some some students that I've worked with refer to it as this, I have a team. These are my people. This is my health plan, because they just don't like the word treatment or they don't like the word plan or, you know, whatever it might be. So helping them come up with those words can be really important. And then even asking them, what are you looking for in the next stage? What do you think your needs are going to be? How are things going to change for you? So they can actively start thinking about what might be a little different. You might under, uh, hear a little bit more about what worries they might have related to the treatment plan or just related to that next stage in life that might give you clues in terms of what tweaks might need to be made or what information they may be seeking as they go to the next stage. And I think it's also important if you've got a teen or a college student, data becomes really important because often, you know, you might hit a stage where your your child might say, I don't. I don't need, I don't need my doctors anymore. I don't need my medication. I don't, I don't need this planner. I don't need any alarms, whatever it might be. I've got it. The confidence is there, but the foresight in terms of what that next stage looks like is not always complete. So giving them some data behind what's working and figuring out what the next stage might look like to translate that, that particular strategy or treatment component can be really important. So agree with you about car time. 
So let's talk about treatment resistance or outright refusal for a minute. What is the best way for a parent to support their teen or young adult through a period when they reject their diagnosis or treatment completely? I think this one's really hard as a parent um, to, to watch or participate in because you want to solve everything, right? Like that's our first go-to as parents. How can I solve this for you? How can I make the best plan for you or that I think is the best plan for you? Often, I think all of us have hit some sort of suggestion or strategy that doesn't quite land well with our kids. Um, and inevitably, at some point, there's resistance that comes about. And sometimes there's value in letting them explore that on their own. Um, so, I mean, I could share a personal story of mine. <clears throat> My son, when he hit high school, hit a resistance period and said, I don't, I don't think I need medication anymore. I'm going to a smaller school now. I have shorter class periods. I think I've got the systems I need. I would like to try not using medication. And as hard as it was to just let him go through this, I was willing to let him figure it out and walk with him in it. So we actually came up with a plan to track measurable results. So something that was concrete, that wasn't tied to my emotions or his, you know, what do your grades look like? Um, how often are you late to class? Are you showing up in the way that you need to be showing up? Are you writing the papers? Are you turning things in on time? You know, what are you able to do um, off medication that you couldn't do or that you couldn't do before without medication. And, and as they develop and grow, there are some things that they'll be able to do without you know, certain components of their treatment plans. Um, but I think, again, it goes back to that collaboration and that conversation, and then creating a concrete timeline for those measurable results that you're tracking with them so that you can set a time to come back and review. So um, in my own personal case, it was a six-week um, interval. So we went through like a grading period. Let's see what it looks like. And we went period by period. And then he finally reached a point within his academic career where the stress point was too high and he couldn't manage his symptoms on his own anymore. So we had to revisit that. But he was 110% in at that point. And he had built up the skills to self-advocate for himself and ask for what he needed and have a really beautiful conversation with his prescriber you know, 13, 14, you know, he was okay about that. But at 16, he was absolutely able to tell his prescriber, this is exactly what I'm looking for. This is what I need. This is where my challenges are. And this is where I, I think I'm okay. And through that, they could collaborate together and co-create that, that new version of a treatment plan for him going forward. I think that was really important. Um, so there, and there are other things that'll work. Like some, some, uh, parents have success with contracts, you know, can we just, you know, let's try this out. If you're a child resistant, sometimes they can be a little more, um, compliant or willing to explore or stick with a treatment plan through a contract. We've actually used a reverse contract with one of my children before. And I know, have several clients that have used that with success where you actually give them the thing they want first and they have to, to maintain the tenets of the contract in order to hold on to that, that coveted item or time or whatever it might be. You know, in my child's case, he's a baseball player. So we created a contract that had three strikes and he had to earn it back um, by 
running the bases, effectively doing extra things around the house. And he never got to that point. But we did learn just how creative and crafty he is. And and a strength actually came out of it. Like, wow, we didn't, you know, we really didn't anticipate how clever he was in terms of working around the terms of the contract. So, <laughs> so, so there are some, you know, pitfalls and, and things that you might need to experiment with things like contracts. Um, but you know, when they choose to take a break and if your child is taking medication, I think it's also really important that if that's a road that you want to explore with them or want to let them explore, it's incredibly important to make sure that you are in contact with a prescriber and having that conversation with a medical professional. And I think it's really helpful for them to have that conversation, not just you as the parent, because this is their treatment plan. This is their moment and this is, you know, they're the ones that need to to become more invested in what they want their future to look like. And those are members of their team, you know, whether it's a psychiatrist or a general practitioner or a pediatrician, um, whoever it is that's that's working on on the medication piece. And if they have a therapist, it's, I think it's helpful to talk to their therapist or a coach, for example, I've had lots of conversations with my high school students that I work with related to this topic and preparing them to have that conversation with their prescriber. Uh, what do I say? You know, there's, there's that um, hesitancy. Like, I don't really know what I want and, and sitting with your kid and have, giving them that moment to breathe and really think big picture, I think can be really helpful. And it's a great way to help them practice some of those executive functions that they often are lacking. Now, what if something in the treatment plan is not working? What can a parent do if they notice symptoms are a problem, but the teen or young adult either is not noticing or doesn't want to discuss it? That's a tough one sometimes. Um, You know, when you have a child that maybe doesn't notice, but they're open to the conversation, that's a little bit easier because you can always bring that information. This is what I'm, I'm noticing, or this is what I'm observing. What are you feeling? Um, what are you seeing? What do you think about that? So then if they're open to have that conversation, it's a much easier road and then figuring out, okay, what, what should we do about it together? What do you want to do? Do you want to brainstorm about this? Sometimes they don't know what the answer is, particularly if they're not aware. And often as a parent, you can bring some conversation and suggestions to the table. They may not like all of them. Um, they may not be responsive to all of them, but starting that conversation be, is really where I think where the first steps come in. If you've got a child that doesn't want to have a conversation about it, it's a little bit more difficult. Um, I think sometimes, depending on the age of your child, if you have a working relationship with their team members and you have the ability to have conversations with their team members, you can share your observations and concerns with them. Um, and I'm a big advocate of letting your child know, hey, by the way, I'd really like to let your doctor know. I'd really like to have a conversation with your doctor about this. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm just overreacting or overzealous or super worried. Maybe it's nothing, but I need to talk to somebody to help work through what I'm feeling and what I'm noticing. Um, and, but again, it goes back to that, that data collection you know, what exactly are you noticing? What are the specific changes in the dynamics that are shifting that you're seeing? Because that's what your prescriber is going to need to know. Um, if you're, um, if there is a problem or there's, or there's changes and the treatment plan isn't working, talking to those specialists that are working with your child or having, helping them have that conversation with them 
can become really important. Again, you're helping them practice self-advocacy um, and you're also being a proactive partner with them. So again, it comes back to that collaboration. You know, I, I'm where you can, you can use your eye language. You know, I'm, I'm scared or I'm worried or it's, it's me. It's my problem. It's not necessarily theirs. That's where a lot of the resistance is, you know, stop trying to fix me. Stop trying to tell me what to do, or you can't tell me what to do. I'm 24. Um, <laughs> so there's, you know, there could be moments where, where that comes, comes into play and resistance, you know, our kids, our kids are an important part of the team. And I think it's really, um, a hallmark of helping them develop those skill sets and that the maturity for them to be able to manage themselves is including them as early as possible in the thoughts and in the conversations and in the education. Because I think it makes it easier down the road when things do feel like they're falling off the rails, um, you can start those conversations a little bit easier. So how can a parent encourage their teen or an adult to come to them and talk to them when there's an issue with their treatment? That's a really great question, Susan. I think open discussions are such a big asset in a relationship, particularly with a child that has ADHD, um, because so often they're not noticing or not noticing right away what's not working. And when you have a child that comes to you and says, I am noticing something, that's, that's a big one. That's, that's a huge step in self-management and actualization and awareness for our kids and um, starting those conversations openly and even on a regular basis just even when things are you know quote unquote normal or seem to be running smoothly um, having those regular conversations whether it's at dinner or again in the car or maybe it's you know a weekend you know breakfast conversation hey tell me how your week's going or tell me what life is like for you right now and noticing and telling them what you're noticing, particularly the things that are working, um, our kids need positive feedback. And the more positive feedback that we can provide to them and share with them, the more likely they're going to open up to us because they hear enough negative feedback in the world as it is. And I think that's really the biggest piece. And shifting our language even just a little bit in terms of just really, I, I tell my parents, it's you're putting on your detective hat. It's time to get curious. So really just asking our kids, what is, you know, how are you feeling? What is going on? You want open-ended questions. You don't want the yes or the no or the why or the I don't know, because that's not going to give anybody information. You want to know how something might be impacting them or what was their favorite part of the week or what do they feel like they're really knocking out of the park right now? And what's their biggest challenge? Um, and again, that get, gets them into thinking of what, what they want for their future self as well. So I think that's really important. I think the connection um, overall becomes your biggest strength within the relationship. What options are available for teens and young adults who want to comply with treatment but have trouble remembering to take their medications, if they're taking it on their own, mm -hmm. utilize other aspects of their treatment plan? Are there devices, apps, strategies? What kinds of things are available for them? Oh, my gosh. There's, there are so many options out there. It can feel overwhelming. 
a lot of people with ADHD can become easily overwhelmed by all of the tools, the strategies, and the apps. You know, there really is an app for everything. There are, I mean, there are gadgets, you know, including like pill minders or tracking uh, reminders that you can screw onto your prescription bottle tops, which will tell you when you last opened the, the top. Um, there are um, apps that will remind you to take your medication. You could set alarms. You could put sticky notes um, somewhere that you want to be reminded when you walk in to take your medication. Um, and those, FYI, might need to be changed every once in a while because they're going to lose their novelty at some point. Um, you know, you're not going to pay attention to the blue sticky note after a, maybe a day, maybe a week. Maybe you have to move it to a different location. Um, maybe you change it to pink whatever it might be, if you're a sticky note person, my, my clients that use sticky notes, and I'm a big sticky note person myself, but it, you know, moving them around creates that novelty that our, you know, the ADHD brain will respond to a little bit more easily. There's a great app that um, a lot of my clients have started using in the last year called I Can't Wake Up. And I think the equivalent for the iPhone is Alarmy. Um, I have clients that are using it to create an actual morning routine. Um, and so they're actually utilizing the scanning feature of the app. So the alarm would go off and they're, they need to get up and go to the place where they need to take their medication or go to the bathroom to you know, brush their teeth or go to the front hallway to pick up their briefcase before they leave. Um, so a lot of, um, I have one client who literally established an entire morning routine by creating these alarms and anticipating when he was going to fall off track. You know, he said, oh, I know that I'm going to go into the bathroom and brush my teeth because I have my phone on with me everywhere. I'm going to get lost, you know, on a YouTube video or something. So I set another one for 15 minutes after that alarm that's going to remind me to go take my medication and I have to scan my pill bottle. And then I'm holding my pill bottle in my hand. So obviously that's gonna help me remember, oh, I need to take these. <laughs> um, and so he's, you know, he created his own system in that way, uh, which has been really helpful. You know, you can utilize smartwatches. There are lots of, you know, you can use a, a silent alarm. You could have an audible alarm. You could have a vibrating alarm. So if you don't want the noise, or if you need the noise, you, know, you have different options. I think that's the one thing I do like about technology. Um, for younger students or um, you know, those that are living at home, sometimes parental support is still a really nice piece of the team to have um, underneath you. So I have some students in high school whose parents will wake them up a half an hour before they really need to get out of bed so that they can take their medication, they roll over, and they get up and they, you know, go about their day. And a lot of what their practice has become is I want to be able to, I like the method. I like the strategy. I'd like to try and do it on my own. And so they're utilizing alarms in combination on their own. And then mom and dad become the backup just in case. Um, so there's, you know, there's ways that parents can be involved. If you've got a child going into a physical school building, uh, school nurses for public schools or, you know, some private schools that do have school nurses wherever they need to go to, to that someone that can hold their medication for them if they need to take it during the day, they can also become really important. And then I think the biggest thing that I've um, 
that I've seen with kids is working on point of performance. And that is effectively your personal GPS for getting things done. It's that reminder. How do I remind myself when I get to this place or set myself up for a success? So am I taking my medication at, at bedtime or when I wake up, do I want it on my bedside table? If so, how do I set my bedside table up so that when I wake up, the first thing I'm reminded to do is to take my medication. Is it in the bathroom counter? Is it in a kitchen cabinet? Can you attach it to another habit? So that's a strategy called habit stacking. And so if there's something you're already doing on a regular continuous basis, so let's take brushing your teeth, for example. If I brush my teeth and I want to take my medication before or after I brush my teeth every morning, where do I set it such that in the act of coming to brush my teeth, I am reminded that I need to take my medication. So again, it could be a sticky note. Some people have used, um, you know, they've written on their mirror. Um, some, you know, again, you can use alarms. Sometimes it's just visually seeing everything. So I know some people like to tuck all things away. Um, and a lot of us parents like to tuck things away into cabinets and things of that nature. But if having it out is important for our kids, then that might be one strategy to use. It's also one that might shift when they go to college, if they're living with roommates. Um, that's when you need to have that conversation around medication and securing your medication and who's going to be in your environment. And it's such an, it's an awful conversation to have as a parent to think of that worst case. But I think it's really important to get our kids thinking in that mindset because it is, an, it, and it can be an issue when they go away to college, that there are some kids that might find that medication really interesting. And as we all know, if they're on a stimulant, someone lifts their medication or takes a pill or two without their knowledge, they don't get them easily replaced. So um, I think it's, it's an important conversation to have at that next stage. Thank you. You've shared a lot of excellent, useful information. Is there anything else you'd like to say to parents to help them with this issue? I think it's always important to remember as a parent that you know one of the hallmarks of ADHD is that our kids are going to be consistently inconsistent. And they may have the greatest intentions, but every once in a while, things may fall off the rails. And really creating the collaboration and communication with your child so that when things do fall off the rails, you can build some resilience um, and help them figure out, okay, that didn't work. What's my plan B or what's my next step? How do I, how do I do this differently the next time? Or if something changes, what might I need to think about that isn't working right now? Um, you know, our kids are, they're often not as skilled at self-regulation as we might anticipate or expect for their chronological age. So really going back to that, where are that question of where are they developmentally right now? Uh, because our kids are often delayed and at, when in the older years, it may be three to five years behind their peers. So they may be behaving like a freshman in high school when they're a junior or a senior. Um, when they're in college, you know, they're still developing that prefrontal cortex all the way beyond most of them graduating college if they graduate within four years. So those mid-20s, you know, that's when we start to see a lot of that maturation come to fruition in the later stages of executive function. So our kids may still need us and they may just need us to have conversation with and to brainstorm with and also to help to point things out and make those observations. So I think 
while change is inevitable, you know, as our kids gain more independence, it's natural that they'll want to take more control over that treatment plan and helping them pave the way as soon as possible to, to start thinking about those, those components and what a treatment plan looks like and what they want in their future and what they need um, becomes really important because there can be changes in structure and circumstance, there can be change in cognitive demand, and then skill development encompasses and supports all of those. So at the end of the day, that's what we want is we wanna help our kids build the skills they need to become independent humans. Thank you, Kate, so much. I think this will be so helpful to parents who are navigating this tricky transition years. I'm happy to be here today, Susan. Thanks for having me. Thank you. This podcast was sponsored by Takeda. Better health, brighter future. Thank you for listening to another episode of Chad's ADHD 365 Podcasts.